Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, some selections from chapter 18 and chapter 20 and then chapter 23. Uh, We're looking at the relationship between David and his friend Jonathan. Uh, You can follow along. It's printed for you there in the worship folder. That might be the easiest way for you to do so. But if you want to grab a Bible, you can turn from place to place. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. We'll read it together here at the beginning. But if you want to look back, it's printed for you there in your worship folder, so you can do that. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. Uh, let's read, beginning in chapter 18. We're going to read the first nine verses and then go to chapter 20 and then to chapter 23. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit together to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And they said this, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now notice the contrast between the way Saul and the way his son treat this man David. Now, In chapter 20, verse 16, But Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, verse 42, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose, departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And then in chapter 23, verse 16, And Jonathan Saul's son rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but it's the word of our God that stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we come to this text this morning. Who are your people? Do you have people? Do you know what I mean by that? Do you have some people? When Ashley and I meet with people in counseling setting, this is always one of the first questions that we ask them now. When somebody is in crisis, um, they, they need a lot of things, but one of the main things they need is somebody that they can talk to, people who will help shoulder the weight of their grief. You need people that you can call in the middle of the night when you're lonely or afraid, people who will be there for all of your highs and lows. Years ago, a friend of mine who is a therapist, he said to me one time we were talking, I'm a pastor, he's a therapist, and he said, you know, most of the people who end up in my office, they don't really need a therapist. They really just need a friend. I checked in with him this week just to make sure that that was still good, it's still true, he said, absolutely, maybe even more so than when he first said it. Most sin problems are no friend problems. That's a little cheesy, isn't it? But it makes a point, doesn't it? 
Most of the people who end up in crisis, and whatever the case might be, relationally in marriage or in their personal lives, if you look, you can trace it back to that they've really been trying to live without people who are walking alongside of them intimately, who know what's really going on, who they're listening to and taking advice from and even submitting themselves to. Most sin problems are no friend problems. In Ephesians 4, which we read a little while ago, being without friends who support you, who confront you, who you submit yourself to because they know better than you what's best for you, being without friends like that is, an, is giving an opportunity to the devil. That's what Paul says. To come in and start to sow discord and all kinds of bad things. Let me say it more positively, though. So let's flip it on its head just for a minute. Positively, let's put it this way. Friends are kingmakers. You see the title of the sermon, The Kingmaker? Jonathan was a kingmaker. Friends, now this is going to be harsh, okay? And I don't do this often, but this is a little harsh. I don't mean for it to be, don't take it that way, but let me just say it, okay? I'm just preparing you. Friends are kingmakers. They are not emotional support animals. Nothing against emotional support animals. I love them. I have a dog. He's my emotional support animal. Not really, but kind of. I mean, like, you know, that's great. But friends, friends are something different. God's design for you in friendship is the greatness of the other person. Their greatness, not your happiness, not your peace of mind, not your comfort. That should be your focus. Now, of course, you need a friend who's committed to your greatness, too, but that's not your first concern. Your first concern is to make other people great by being a friend. And this section in 1 Samuel is about David's rise to be king of Israel between his anointing in Bethlehem in, verse, in chapter 16 and becoming king uh, later in the story. It's a period of time, scholars say, somewhere between 15 to 20 years and there was a lot of really hard things that David had to walk through in that interim period of time. Because of Saul's jealousy, he was exiled. He was hunted. They were the hardest years of David's life, where he penned most of the Psalms, by the way, which is interesting, hiding out in the caves in the wilderness with no place to go, no home, you know, exiled from his friends and family. And, uh, and so the text, though, as it's told to us here, suggests that what got him through where he went to find the strength to persevere was in the friendship that he had with this man named Jonathan, who happened to be Saul's son, Jonathan. More than anything else, it was his friendship with Jonathan that made David king. With Saul, David was a tool to be used for his own gain. But with Jonathan, David had a true friend. And Jonathan's friendship made him king. Now, we know this to be true in so much of life. Tolkien even admitted that he would never have finished The Lord of the Rings without C.S. Lewis being his friend and encouraging him to continue to write. So credit C.S. Lewis with that, too, among everything else he did. I mean, every book you've ever read, if you, if you, you know, notice, and I love to read, actually, the, every book has an acknowledgments page, you know, where the author lists all the people who made the book possible. And if you want to know who the real, like the real friends are, you go all the way to the end. And whatever the last couple of people is typically, you know, my, above all my wife, above all my wife and children, or above all this friend. You, our, our accomplishments are hardly ever our own. They are always the product of the love and the support that we've been shown by other people. Friends are king makers, which makes friendship really important. 
And there's a lot we can learn in this text about it. And I want to show you just three things as typical for us. I want you to see how good friendship, as it's modeled here for us, and we're going to talk mostly about Jonathan this morning. David is the main character of the story, but Jonathan really is the one that makes everything go. And so in Jonathan particularly, we, we see how friendship, good friendship, is really comprised of these three elements. It is mission, and it is covenant, and it is ultimately prophecy. And you'll see those are the three headings the three of the, in the outline that I've given you in, in the worship folder as well, so you can follow along there, okay? Good friendship is mission and covenant and prophecy. But let me say just one thing before we get too far down the road. One note. The friendship between Jonathan and David is so intense, and the language is so intense, the language is so intimate, that you probably would not be surprised to learn that some contemporary scholars have proposed that it was, in fact, some kind of same-sex romantic relationship that these two people had together. And I just want to say that that says a whole lot more about our cultural moment than it does about the text. We are so thoroughly Freudian that we can't conceive of anything being more thrilling than eros love. But these two friends, however, they suggest that philo love, friendship love, is just as significant and just as fulfilling and just as beautiful as all the other loves are as well. An analogy C.S. Lewis used, he said, friendship is not a side dish in life's banquet, it's the main course. And David says as much later in the story, he says of Jonathan, your love for me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. And so even in marriage, the best marriages are friendships first that spike into romance, not the other way around. Parenting is really, parenting is befriending your children towards the greatness that you know is in them and that you want to see come out in them. And so we just need to say that as we talk about friendship this morning. Let's don't get tripped up by that, okay? So first, friendship, good friendship, is mission and covenant and ultimately prophecy. Let's talk about mission first. Friendship is mission. Now, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to talk a lot about him this morning because he's written what has really become a seminal work on friendship in his book, The Four Loves. He has this famous and helpful image where he describes two people standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, both staring at the same horizon, absorbed in some common interest that they're journeying together hand in hand toward. That's friendship. And he says, by contrast, romantic love can be pictured as two people face to face, absorbed in one another and oblivious to anything else happening around them. And so here's what he says. He says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love, but friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. He goes on, people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else beside friends. If there's no shared mission, no shared truth, he says, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something. And then, in his way, he says, those who have nothing can share nothing. And those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Now, that's incredibly insightful, and in my experience, I found it to be profoundly true. The text... In chapter 18, verse 1, describes Jonathan and David's souls, look there, being knit together, so that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And similar language is repeated in chapter 20, verse 17, where it says that he loved him as he loved his own soul. And it's interesting language there. It's part of what gets people tripped up. But the soul is the Hebrew word that describes the inner depths 
of a person's life, the desires and the drives and the loves that shape the motivational core of a person. It's describing for us the way that Jonathan and David shared the same convictions and passions and purpose that so much so that in their individuality, those passions and convictions began to, began, began to overlap and intertwine until their lives were so threaded together in the deepest and truest places that you could hardly think of one without the other. It really is remarkable, especially when you consider how unlikely a pair they are. Jonathan was, of course, Saul's son, the heir to the throne. Who else was the heir to the throne in God's eyes? David was. And so David was his rival, already anointed as his replacement. You wouldn't think these two would come together like this. But also, and I, this was new for me, I didn't realize this, but Jonathan, I've always pictured them as similar in age, kind of these two young men running around, you know, in their 20s doing some crazy stuff. But Jonathan's probably 20, maybe even 25 years older than David. And so there were no natural affinities that would explain the way that their souls became knit together. Yet there was something that transcended all these differences, all of these natural rivalries that they had, that brought the two of them to be one on the soul level. Now let me go back to C.S. Lewis again. He compares friendship with mere companionship. He says a companion is just somebody that you have fun with, that you enjoy the same kinds of activities. That's You go to a ball game with a, with a friend. You... You go play golf with a friend, but or with a companion. But a friend is something on a deeper level. A friend is someone that you share the same truth with. It's like when you're getting to know somebody and you dare share with them your deepest passion, your truest self. You find the strength and courage to be vulnerable, and you really you kind of reveal yourself that part of you that you feel alone with, like like it's yours and nobody else shares it, you know, and it's just so true of you. But then as you're sharing, the other person says something like, wait, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. And you realize there is someone else who shares that deepest thing that's true of you as well. So Lewis describes it like this. He says, it's when, it's when two such persons discover one another, when with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings, they share their vision. It is then that friendship is born, and instantly they stand together in an immense solitude. And I've read that passage so many times, but in all the times I've read it, I've never picked up on that idea at the very end there of an immense solitude that exists between friends, that it's possible to experience solitude with another person. Think about that. A solitude that extends just beyond you because you are so aligned. You are so threaded together that you've become one and in such a profound way that it can't be undone without doing terrible damage, not just to the friendship, but to both of the people involved as well. Most, most friendships struggle because there is no mission. There's just the desire for friendship. It's a, you know, quid pro quo arrangement. But friendship has to be about something else, something bigger. Lord of the Rings, as I've mentioned already, and uh, because Jonathan's been reading it, we've been talking about it more, but it's a story about friendship. It really is. It's, it's a story of friendship. It's the, you don't get caught up in the whole adventuring part of it. It's really about friendship. 
And the title of the first book in the trilogy is The Fellowship of the Rings, The Friendship of the Ring. And it tells the story of how there are these different races in Middle-earth with histories of conflict that go back centuries and centuries and even millennia. Resentments nurtured from thousands and hundreds of thousands of years that have settled into distrust and contempt. And so you have elves and you have dwarves who hate one another and have been battling one another over treasures locked in mountains. You have kingdoms of men who are rivals. But then the story is told... Twelve from among all of these races of people are chosen to journey together toward Mount Doom on a quest to save Middle-earth. They share a mission, and they bleed, and they die together, and something happens. All of these natural-born rivals, because of the mission they share, become friends. For David and Jonathan, Jonathan and David, the same mission, the same truth was what you see in chapter 23, verse 16, where Jonathan finally has to comfort David at his lowest point when Saul's fury has been unleashed in its greatest strength. And he says there in verse 16, it says that he strengthened his hand in God. What a great phrase. Jonathan came to David and he strengthened his hand in God. Saul had been trying to kill him, but Jonathan knew that it was God's purpose for David to be king. And so he encouraged David. He reminded him of God's words. He reminded him of his own anointing. He reminded him of God's intentions. And he said, you shall be king over Israel and I will sit next to you. See, Jonathan had a vision for David's greatness. And he made it his life mission to bring all that greatness out of David. That's a friend. That's a friend. The Ephesians passage is so important. It says, do not give the devil opportunity. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, it says there, which we read just a minute ago, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So to have a friend is to have a person. A friend is a person who has a vision of what another person is becoming. A friend is someone who looks at you and they see the person that you will one day be when you stand before God at the end of all things. What Paul refers to as the day of redemption. That is the day when we stand in the presence of God and all of our imperfections finally melt away and the beauty and the glory that has always been there but hidden is finally beginning to shine through. That's the horizon, by the way, that friends are staring towards with one another to get to the throne of God together to present one another to the Lord. And it says there that it's the Holy Spirit's job in the life of someone who puts their faith in Jesus to get them to that day. Everything the Holy Spirit does in us is for the sake of the person that we're becoming. And what Paul says to us here is in your relationships with other people, you can join the Holy Spirit in his work of perfecting and beautifying the people that are in your life. You do that in marriage, you do it in parenting, You do it in befriending. You come alongside of the Holy Spirit in his effort to take all of that beauty and glory that's in people that nobody else sees but the Spirit and to bring it out. And if you do that, you're a friend. Or it says you can grieve the Spirit by working against that work that he's doing through unkindness, through carelessness, through words that tear people down instead of building up. There are no ordinary people. The most boring An uninteresting person in the room this morning will one day be so glorious that you will have to shield your eyes to look at them. And friends live in awe of one another. 
because they have this God-given ability to see all that beauty and glory before it even comes out. They live in awe of one another, and they make it their mission to bring out all of the greatness that they see so that everybody else can see it too. In friendship, we're on a mission to make one another great. But second, friendship is not just mission, it is covenant. Because this language comes up over and over again here. You see it. The language of covenant found throughout all of these chapters. So in chapter 18, verse 3, it says, Jonathan made covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then in chapter 20, verse 16, Jonathan again made covenant with the house of David. And so you have this language of covenant. And for the ancients, making or cutting covenant was a way of making a commitment to one another. It was declaring a commitment and an intention to say, moving forward, the relationship that we have will be based on my commitments to you, not my feelings for you, because my feelings for you might change. But once I've made a commitment to you, that's the part that never changes. It's what we do when we take vows in marriage. A good wedding vow, I have to tell the people that I marry this because, man, we really get this wrong, uh, and more and more so uh, in present, you know, in kind of contemporary society. A good wedding vow doesn't describe present feelings. A good wedding vow is a promise of future commitment. As the feelings of love that two people who are getting married on the day of their wedding feel just inevitably ebb and flow. To make a covenant is to say, no matter what, I will remain true to the relationship. Things are sure to change. Who knows what the future holds? But the one constant amidst all of that change will be the commitment I've made to you. See, the opposite of covenant is consumerism. And in consumerism, you're, you're in it as long as you're getting at least as much as you're giving. It's the way it works in business. But sociologists have started to take note, and it's a real concerning trend of the way that can, a consumer mindset, which works in the business world, is now spilling over into all the other parts of our lives and even our relationships. We're becoming consumers in the way that we just consume everything. And as a consumer, you're in the relationship for what you're getting out of it. But what happens is, is because that's true, then you're constantly doing a cost-benefit analysis. What am I getting out of this versus what am I putting into this? And the way you feel about the relationship is often dictated to you by your understanding of whether or not you're in a plus or minus margin in relation to the other person. But as soon as it's no longer worth it, as soon as, as, soon as it becomes too complicated or too hard or you're giving way more than you're getting, then you're out. I'm going to go find somebody else who will be a better fit, and on and on and on it goes, and we quit on one another and move from one relationship to the next. Now Saul, Saul eventually caught on to Jonathan's friendship with David. This is in uh, chapter 20, and he comes to his son at some point, and he says, son, do you not understand? Do you not understand what's happening here? You have aligned yourself with that man who has his eye on our throne. What are you doing? And he goes and he incites Jonathan to think about himself and what's best for himself and to do what's best for him in his future kingdom, to turn David over to Saul so that he can be eliminated and Jonathan can be established as the heir apparent. But Jonathan would not. And that was the difference between them. Saul always acted in his own best interests. Jonathan showed Hesed love, one-way love. Committed love. And covenant is a commitment. And it's a commitment of vulnerability. That's the first thing I would say to you. It's a commitment of vulnerability. And to be vulnerable is choosing to live with a broken heart when it comes to the way that sin can cause friction and alienation in relationships. Choosing to 
Continue showing up, no matter how badly you've been hurt in the past by the people you're in relationship with or how uneven the relationship might feel or how scared you might be of being hurt in the future or how annoyed you might be at all of the things they keep doing wrong. You refuse to lock your heart away from all of that pain and you put yourself out there and you go first and then you go second and if you need to, you go third and you say hard things that might make things hard and you grieve when it's easier to just be angry and you forgive when you're tempted to hold a grudge and you keep going when you want to quit. Vulnerability. But it is also, covenant is also a commitment of time. It's making a commitment of time to someone. G.K. Chesterton said that when you make a promise, you make an appointment with yourself in the future to make good on the words that you spoke in the past. I mean, look at the language again in chapter 20, verse 16. It's interesting. Jonathan made a covenant with, not with David. It says, look at the language. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Not just with David, but with David's house. That is, with his children and his grandchildren and his generations. In the previous verses, which we also, we didn't read, he asked the same thing of David. This is verse 15. As long as I'm alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. David, when you come into your kingdom and you're on your throne, don't forget my children and my grandchildren and my generations. Jonathan's saying, I'm in this for the long haul. Justin Whitmore early defines friendship as vulnerability across time. It's maintaining your ability to keep being vulnerable over time, to keep showing up, to not allow the accumulated offenses and disappointments to sour into bitterness and distance. It is love with no expiration date. In his new book, Made for People, which is really great, he told a story, which I thought was really, really neat, of being a groomsman in a friend's wedding a few years ago now, and the groom the gift that the groom gave him as a groomsman was a nice bottle of scotch. And on top of the scotch was a 2-0-3-5. It was written on top of the box. And he was wondering, what, I mean, what is, is that a code? What, I mean, what is that? Is that like, you know, the combination to the locker? I mean, what is that? And when he asked, there, and he opened it, and he realized there was a note. And the note said, uh, Please accept this scotch. We'll drink it together in 2035. You can't open it until then. Isn't that a neat gift? What's he saying? He's saying, look, it's, that may be 15 or 20 years from now. It was a, way, it was a pledge. It was a way of saying, you're going to be an important part of my future. And nothing's going to change over time between the two of us, no matter what. Verse 15 again, show me the steadfast love of the Lord Jonathan says, the steadfast love of God is God's one-way love. It's the fact that God does not love us because we love him. That God's love comes from his own inner fullness. It goes first. It is never a response to something that he sees or responds to in us. The covenant that he made with Abraham is paradigmatic of all of the covenants that he makes. In Genesis chapter 15, if you remember, he comes to this man, Abraham, and he says, listen, there's, there's a relationship between the two of you, and it's really special, and this, this, this is the promise I'm going to make to you. And so what they did was they took animals, and they, they killed, they slaughtered the animals and ripped them in two, and they made a pathway between the pieces. And it was the way the ancients made covenants, to walk between the pieces of these slain animals as if to say, I'm making promises to you. Can you imagine that at a wedding? Next wedding you go to, like, let's slaughter some animals. Like, you know, let's walk through these things. It's, that's a little bit more brutal, isn't it? 
But it was a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal we're making, maybe it, maybe it, may it be done to me as we have done it to these animals. But if you remember in the story, and typically both parties, so you're making a contract with somebody, the one party would walk through the pieces, and then the other party would walk through the pieces, and both were bound by the pledge that they made and by the curse that they've called down upon themselves if they fail to keep their end of the deal. But in this story with Abraham, God comes, and he, he comes in a theophany of a, of a flaming pot, and he passes through the pieces. But what's amazing in the story is that Abraham never passes through the pieces. God is the only one who passes through the pieces, as if to say, if I fail, Abraham, may this be done to me, but also to say, but if you fail, Abraham, may this be done to me. I'm taking responsibility for my part and for your part. Isn't that amazing? That is the steadfast love of the Lord. And Jonathan is saying, he's setting the conditions, he's saying that steadfast love of God the way that God loves his people, the way that God has covenanted and committed himself to his people, that is how I will love you. Show me the same kind of love. Covenant love. And so thirdly, really quickly, then if friendship is mission and it is covenant, it is also prophecy. And by that I mean that the gift of friendship is that it points to us to the true friend, what makes all of this possible. And the love that we are after in friendship is God's steadfast love. So Justin Whitmore early, he says again, he says, this, this, this blew my mind, to be honest with you. He says, you were made for people in such a way that you will be lonely even if it is just you and God. I probably need to say that again. That you were made for people in such a way that you will be lonely even if it is just you and God. I mean, think about it. In Eden, Adam had God in perfect relationship with God, and yet the Lord came and still said it is not good that he was alone, which means our fullest capacity, our fullest potential can only be found in friendship. We were made by God for more than just God. Isn't that? But at the same time, it's important to realize that for friendship to work, we can make an idol out of it. We can look to other people to be our center, to be our source. And it's important to acknowledge the insufficiency of every friendship. We are sinners trying to befriend one another. And in the very best friendships, we're going to frustrate and fail one another. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this. He said, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others. <laughs> we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, and if we are so fortunate, even with ourselves. What does he mean? He means you better know that you're going to make a mess of things, and the people that you give your heart to, they're going to make a mess of things too. And it means this, God plus friendship is the way of flourishing, but making a God out of friendship will keep you frustrated. And so if you're despondent, because you can't figure out what's wrong with you, because you don't have friends, or if you're angry all the time because the other people in your life can't get their act together and there are no good friends out there, no people worthy of being your friends, then I just want to warn you that you may be in danger of being that person that C.S. Lewis described who just wants friends and they can never find any because their need for friends is too great. Now, having said that, let's get a picture, though, of the prophetic nature of this friendship, as we, this idea of friendship, as just as we finished this morning. 
The point of friendship is to open our hearts to being befriended by God. Or let me say that another way. You'll never be the kind of friend Jonathan was to David without first being befriended by God himself, which is what we read in John 15, which we read earlier in the, in the, in the um, service. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus turns to his disciples and to us and says, and you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. That's amazing. And let's finish up just there by exploring very briefly how we are to befriend one another with Jesus's love and also from Jesus's love, because you see both in the texts. And first, I want you to see that we are to love with Jesus's love. And it's interesting, Jonathan, not David, is really the picture of Jesus in this text. We're unaccustomed to that because David is typically the Christ figure, but not here. Here it's Jonathan. Look at chapter 18, verse 3. Jonathan made covenant with David, and then I want you to see this, verse 4. Notice what he does. It says he stripped himself of his royal robe, and he gave it to David. He disarmed himself. He made himself vulnerable. He he gave him his sword and his shield and his weapons, foregoing any attempt to protect himself. Jonathan is symbolically laying aside his claim to the throne and making himself vulnerable to this man, David, and making it his mission to see David and not himself on the throne of Israel. And then what he does is, is from that point, time and time and time again, he goes about giving his life up for his friend David. Now that's remarkable. It's remarkable. He loved David with Jesus' love. Because, of course, it's just a picture of what God has done for us in Christ, isn't it? The Bible says that Jesus was God, and he emptied himself and became nothing. He took his royal robe, and he divested himself of his power and his glory to be a servant, laying down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ was obedient to God all the way to the cross to satisfy the demands of God's justice against your sins. And he did it to make you great, to fill you with his spirit, and to unlock the greatness that he sees inside of you so that as you come alive in his love, everyone else can see and rejoice in what his grace is doing in you. That's the kind of friend Jesus is to you. Hello? Okay, I mean... Yeah. It is good. It's good because there is no greater love. Right? Looking put nub in all the wrong places. Elmer Fudd? Right? There is no greater love. And I just showed you where you can find the love you're looking for. There are other friends who love you. But no friend who loves you as fully and as consistently and as powerfully as he does. No other love that can do that in your life. And this is how we're to love one another. It says there in John 15, 12, laying aside our own rights, worrying less about what we're getting out of the relationship, refusing to roll over in our mind all the ways the other person has let us down and choosing instead to be vulnerable and enduring the grief and the disappointment of unmet expectations and taking up our cross and following Jesus and laying down our lives for our friends. In marriage, in parenting, in friendship, loving with Jesus' love, but not just loving with Jesus' love, loving from Jesus' love. Because here's the thing, you can only love with Jesus' love when you're loving from Jesus' love. And that too comes out in the text. 
In chapter 20, verse 42, if you look there, Jonathan says this. He says, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And it's a great image. And in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the following observation about, church, about Christian community. He said, imagine two friends. He said, if their, if, uh, if their love for one another for both of the people involved is based on the love of Christ, then what he says is, is as we try to relate to one another as Christians and as people of faith who are who, you know, trusting in Jesus, then, then I can't get to you and you can't get to me without first having to go through Christ. It's really interesting. He said, he said we don't relate to one another directly. Jesus, as it, as it were, stands in between us. So every interaction is shaped and empowered by the gospel. Before I can get to you, I have to first deal with Jesus. Before you can get to me, you have to deal with Jesus. And it's that dealing with Jesus that changes the way we deal with one another, see? So before I can respond to the hurt in a relationship, I have to first make sense of the way that Jesus has met my own failure with grace and love. And when I'm ready to give up, because it's just become too much, I have to first remember that Jesus refuses to give up on me. And when it starts to matter a little too much, and when too much of my happiness is at stake and how it's going in the friendship, I have to satisfy my heart in his love so that I can need the friendship less, which allows me to love more. See? See how it works? See, it's Jesus between you and me. The love of God for me is the source of my love for you, living from Jesus' love. And so we learn an important lesson. It takes three people to love. Friendship is always between three people. Me and you and who else? And Jesus and God. And that's the secret of friendship, see? So what's the takeaway? If you look there in your outline, I just put it this way. The takeaway that I would have you walk away from this morning with is just this, be a friend. Now, I've really focused on Jonathan this morning. Everybody wants a friend like Jonathan. But if you're thinking, <laughs> if, if after all this time of me talking, you, you are thinking, why don't I have somebody like Jonathan in my life? I wonder why I don't have a friend like that. You've missed the point. I want you to be a Jonathan. To be captivated by the greatness that you see in others and to become a kingmaker yourself and you commit yourself to their greatness. If you, and here's why. If you become that kind of friend, guess what? You will have friends. Jesus said the measure with which you give, it will be measured to you. The measure with which you give will be the measure that things are given back to you. So he said give and it will be given to you. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Befriend others you will be befriended. So here's the shift. <clears throat> here's the shift that needs to happen that would, man, radically change lives and change our experience of one another in, in this community, that you stop showing up to things and you stop, like, allowing your mind to mull over this question. You stop asking, who will love me? And instead you start to ask, who can I love? And if your faith is in Jesus... The question, who will love me, has already been definitively answered by Jesus Christ himself. What did he say? No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Amen.
Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we would acknowledge here in this moment that um, even though we read so many times that you are the water that if we drink it, we'll never thirst again, that you are the food, if we eat it, we will never hunger again, that you are the love, if we find it, would so fill our hearts that we would no longer be needy and grasping for love and glory from other people. And yet, instead of coming to you, we time and time again turn away from you and continue to look to other things, to relationships and to people and to um, children and to spouses and to friends as if those things could possibly fill up the God-shaped hole we have in our heart. Would you, this morning, give us the courage and the perspective to be done with all of that, to become, as we uh, read a minute ago, let me get this right, to become disillusioned, overwhelmed with great disillusionment with others and even with ourselves so that instead we might turn to you in faith and find in you the friend our heart has so longed for, the friend of sinners, The friend who says, you don't have to clean yourself up to come and be my friend. I'll take you just as you are. The friend who doesn't love us because we're beautiful, but whose love makes us beautiful. Who doesn't love us because we're great, but whose love makes us great. You are the one that our hearts long for. You are the one that is worthy of our tribute. And so even now as we respond in faith and repentance, we sing to you because you are worthy of our song. And so we pray it. And we sing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now as the Lord sends us out into the world on a mission of friendship, what these words of benediction mean is that no matter how imbalanced it might get for you this week, no matter how much more you might be giving uh, than you might be receiving, if you turn your heart towards the Lord in God, you will never, you will never give more than you receive because he's a God of grace. And so receive this benediction and the promise of his blessing, his face turned towards you, his favor upon you, all of the overflow of his generosity towards you as he sends you now to be a friend to others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.